Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Benjamin Balint about his new book, Jerusalem, City of the Book. Benjamin Balint is a writer and translator based at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. His previous books include Running Commentary and Kafka's Last Trial. Ben Balint, welcome to the show. Thank you, Renee, for having me. Before we get into your book, which really is a beautiful uh, folio as well as a very interesting read, Uh, Tell us a little about yourself. Well, I grew up in Seattle. Uh, My grandfather moved the family there to work at Boeing, where he stayed all his life. Um, Somehow, I've always uh, been attracted to Jerusalem. And in 2004, I had the chance to move here. I've been living here ever since. And among other things, before writing this uh, book that we'll talk about today, I was able to teach uh, literature uh, at a partnership between Bard College in Dutchess County, New York, and Al-Quds University in East Jerusalem, and uh, got to see a whole different side of Jerusalem that way. And why did you choose to explore Jerusalem's libraries? Well, it started really uh, with a conversation here at Van Leer with my colleague Merav Mack, the co-author and really the lead author on this on this book. And she had she's one of the great experts in contemporary Jerusalem and specifically contemporary Christian communities here. And she had done a kind of academic survey of the very rich and diverse libraries in the city. And we had a conversation which we realized this really uh, could be a way of telling the story of the city in a new way, which is to say, I mean, not to tell it in the usual way of chronologically as a history, as a series of conquests, not to tell it as uh, a place through the element of, of space and territorial rivalries, uh, divisions between East and West, for example, but to tell it through the element of uh, its textual heritage, its textual layers, and how these different languages of Jerusalem have spoken to each other. And really that way, through the libraries, to tell a larger story about each of the uh, communities here, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish. And that's really how the project began. How old are the oldest of Jerusalem's libraries? Well, um, <clears throat> 
it depends how you how you define library. Of course, we we were looking at at collections of texts. One of the oldest libraries that you can call a Jerusalem library is the Dead Sea Scrolls, which by some accounts were written in Jerusalem and uh, only preserved in Qumran near the Dead Sea. And we had the opportunity to um, look not only at, at at old libraries but also this sort of paradox paradoxical feature of Jerusalem that the oldest library is also the newest. So we were able to go to the basement of the uh, the basement laboratory of the Israel Antiquities Authority, where one of the most sophisticated cameras in the world developed by NASA is currently, as we speak, taking images with different wavelengths of the Dead Sea Scrolls and bringing out and rendering legible things that, that hadn't been uh, able to be seen before. So that's one example of, of sort of how the oldest library or, or collection of Jerusalem texts can also be the youngest. Hmm. That that is very interesting and uh, and really very exciting because we, through technology we get to know things that were hidden and secret for a long time. That's exactly it. I mean, and, and that's part of the, one of the themes of the book is, in a certain sense, a lot of the libraries of Jerusalem are inaccessible they're not they're not sort of modeled on the western library uh or the western concept of democratization of knowledge in which the librarian is uh let's say a facilitator to get at the <laughs> at knowledge a lot of the the librarians of jerusalem and really this book is a, a, as much about them as it about as it is about the libraries itself are really sort of these gatekeepers of jerusalem's heritage and as gatekeepers uh, they very often tend to view the outsiders with a great deal of suspicion. Hmm. That's a, a different idea of gatekeeper <laughs> than we normally think. <laughs> Not to open exactly. the gate, but to make sure they stay closed. I'll just give you one, uh, I'll just give you one, one small example. I mean, Merav is, uh, my co-author is just a, an, an expert at opening doors in Jerusalem. And we finally got an audience with the Greek Orthodox patriarch Theophilus. And um, <clears throat> it took us, uh, I would say, a year and a half, two years of negotiation to finally get permission to visit the Greek Orthodox Manuscript Library in Jerusalem, which is one of the great treasures of the world. And um, on, our first, on our first audience with him, he and, and the librarian and Archbishop Aristarchos said, uh, declined our request. And I said, well, um, it's because of Uspensky. So we leave this this room in, in the patriarchate, and we look at each other, and we say, "What? Who or what is Uspensky?" <laughs> um, and it turns out that Uspensky was a 19th century uh, bibliophile, but also book thief um, from Russia, who came to Jerusalem and spirited away some of the great treasures of the Greek Orthodox library. And to this day, that's cited to us as one of the reasons barring our, our access. And that, <laughs> that's just such a typical, typical way about how the city works, and which is this that whole part of the world, is, right? Yeah. Yeah. But memory is long. So, uh, because of this one word and this one man, Uspensky, uh, initially, at least we were, we were barred and it took us a long time to get access. Then there's also the question of rivalries. I mean, it's one of the, the features of how we got into some of these places that we would, we would have to play these rivalries off of each other. And, and one of the first things that we discovered with the book is, is that libraries in this city are used as uh, almost anchors of each of the communities, almost to prove how 
the, their continuity in the city to prove how many centuries they've been here um, and who has the oldest manuscript and this kind of thing. So as soon as we had permission, for example, from the Armenian patriarch Manugian to go to their manuscript library, then, of course, we told the Greeks and we said something like, you know, well, we have permission from the Armenians. Wouldn't it be a shame if the Greek story w wasn't also included? <laughs> <laughs> So clever some of these clever research technique. <laughs> yeah, some of these negotiations were very tricky. Or to, just to give you one final example, um, we had a series of, of meetings with the Ethiopian uh, Christian archbishop in the old city of Jerusalem. And their library is, is quite amazing. It's mostly in their liturgical language of Gez, and it's, uh, it's very seldom studied. I think only a few scholars in the last... Uh, 60, 70 years have had access. So it took us a long time. And finally, the archbishop said, almost in exasper exasperation at our persistence, he said, well, if you want access, I really can't give you permission. You would need, a, you would need the permission uh, of, the, of the patriarch who happens to be in Addis. And three days later, Merav was on a plane to Addis Ababa <laughs> and came back with a uh, letter uh, sealed and stamped by the patriarch there, granting us permission and more or less forcing the Archbishop of Jerusalem to give us access. But that was a coup. Yeah. You, you, you begin the book with a, a wonderful quote. I have always imagined that paradise will be a kind of library. As a scholar yourself, what have libraries meant to you personally? Well, libraries are, first of all, I mean, repositories of, of knowledge, but also um, I've always thought of books for all their portability and for all their impermanence as transmitters of culture. So a lot of the books that we looked at have outlived many owners, right? And, and each of them as an object uh, trails its own history. Um, I think somewhere in the book we quote the medieval Hebrew poet Moshe Ben Ezra, who called books briefcases of wisdom. So in one sense, each of these books is um, is a transmitter of culture. And also, we ca I personally came to see these libraries as a way of getting at um, the duality of Jerusalem, which I hope comes across in this book, which is to say there's the real Jerusalem, the mundane Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. And there's also the imagined Jerusalem, right? What, what in Hebrew we call Yerushalayim Shel Mata and Yerushalayim Shel Mala, the terrestrial Jerusalem and the sort of uh, celestial Jerusalem. And we came to, to understand the libraries of Jerusalem as places that were almost these centers of gravity from which things were exported, like the ideas, uh, the ideas and writings of Jerusalem were exported into the world, but also as places where um, these books, as transmitters of culture, were gathered in. You know that that um, the Zionist endeavor always speaks about the ingathering of exiles. Well, there's something else. There's also the ingathering of culture, and in this case, the ingathering of material culture or the ingathering of books. And there's so many books uh, in the libraries of Jerusalem that we saw, which were gathered here from elsewhere. It's not just the, the Jewish community of Jerusalem that has a diaspora, but all of the communities of Jerusalem have their own diasporas, and each of those diasporas has its own way of imagining the city. And so Jerusalem is one of those cities, of course, that many people 
have an idea of, an imagination of, or fantasies of before they even set foot here, if they ever do. Um, and that's reflected in this motion, I would say, of, of the libraries. The libraries here are, are living things. Uh, the, the, the books move out from the libraries, and, and there are also these repositories that act as these centers of gravity that ingather texts. So that's something that I really learned in the process of, in the forays of visiting some of these corners. And when I read the, um, the part of your book that deals with what you just described, uh, it brought to mind uh, another library lover's uh, book, uh, Susan Orlean, who wrote a book uh, called The Library Book. And she puts it this way, it wasn't that time stopped in the library. It was as if it were captured there, collected there, as in all libraries. And not only my time, my life, but all human time as well. In the library, time is dammed up, not just stopped, but saved. The library is a gathering pool of narratives and of the people who come to find them. It is where we can glimpse immortality. In the library, we can live forever. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I love that. I love that way of putting it. Um, <clears throat> and it's true that, that time works differently in these libraries in particular, not just because figure from the 19th century could be cited as if he had stolen books <laughs> That's yesterday, <so> great. Right. <laughs> but also because of the antiquity of these books and, and how proud of these, these communities are of their antiquity. So for example, um, one of the books that we wanted to see in the Armenian library is from the eighth or ninth century. It's probably the oldest illuminated manuscript in Jerusalem. It's a gospel in, in Armenian very beautiful and uh, we have a photograph of that in the book um so yeah that that resonates with me totally and and what did you mean when you said uh jerusalem's libraries are riddled by secrets and concealments well we found that it was really a puzzle why are some of the libraries so inaccessible and we found out that there were different sort of reasons for this very individual reasons um some have to do with value, uh, with how precious some of these manuscripts and texts are. So, for example, the Armenian, uh, to keep there for a moment, the Armenian Manuscript Library has texts going back to the 8th or 9th century, but some of the manuscripts are deemed so precious that even that library is not deemed sufficiently secure, and they're guarded in the Armenian treasury, and the treasury <clears throat> almost um, houses these manuscripts as if well, alongside relics, as if they were relics themselves. And we found out that um, to gain access to the treasury, uh, there are actually, you need three keys, and therefore three key holders simultaneously. <laughs> one from one is the patriarch, one the librarian, and one a representative of the lay community. Each of them has to bring their keys to the treasury at the same time. It's sort of like the nuclear code of yeah. Jerusalem. <laughs> um, so that's one reason for for the inaccessibility. Another, I think, is suspicion of theft. And there's a whole chapter in our book about theft. Um, another, <clears throat> I think, also has to do with simple shame or embarrassment. So the Syriac community, um, which more or less speaks the dialect of Aramaic that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago to this day, they have this incredible manuscript library. And we went there with uh, uh, 
three curators from the Met in New York. You may remember that I think three years ago there was this marvelous exhibition at the Met about Jerusalem. And in preparation for that, we we had met with the, the, some of the curators and introduced them to some of the gatekeepers of Jerusalem. <clears throat> so we went to the Syriac Library, and the librarian, Abuna Shimon, really sort of declined to let us into the library itself. He would bring texts and manuscripts down to a reception room so that we could see them. About a year later, when Merav and I finally went to the library with Abu Nashimon, we discovered why, which is that the library is just in an appalling state of preservation. The, the community here doesn't have the resources that other communities have, and um, it's just in a, it's in a state of neglect. And Abu Nashimon says sometimes when they have pilgrims come, um, they, for lack of space, put a cot in the manuscript library and, and sleep there. And... Um, so this is another reason why a community might not want to let uh, researchers in. Well, let's move for a moment to the content of these precious texts. Uh, the Book of Psalms, which is said to have been written by King David in antiquity, is still sacred to Jews and Christians around the world, and it continues to be read and prayed. Uh, tell about uh, its relationship to the city of Jerusalem. Well, yeah, I mean, as you say, the Book of Psalms exists in every <clears throat> language in Jerusalem. So we came across uh, Psalms in Gaze, in Arabic, in English, in Syriac, um, in Latin, and in Greek. And um, one of the, the things that Abuna Shimon told us, the Syriac librarian and, and priest, is uh, that some manuscripts, including the a particular book of Psalms that he has, are so, he venerates them so much that he actually kneels when he reads them. Imagine that wow. relates to a text, you know. And so too, uh, when we were chatting with the Greek Orthodox Patriarch Theophilus, he told us that um, this and that psalm are the most important texts to him, and he recites them. Um, so that's one of those, um, it's not just that, that David as a, King David as a warrior is so indelibly associated with Jerusalem, but King David as the psalmist, as a poet, is so indelibly associated with this place. And that's another paradox of the city, right? That it's a city of great violence on the one hand. Uh, it's a city of warriors. But sometimes the warriors are also happen to be the poets <laughs> and also <laughs> the psalmists. Um, so the Psalms is a great example of one of those books that transcends the boundaries of Jerusalem, the physical boundaries of Jerusalem that exists in, in translation. And Jerusalem was, of course, a great site of translation from one uh, from one language to another, and and so that's one of the themes of our of our book is to look at at uh, how uh, text like Psalms really draws the city together, uh, or 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 serves as a as a foundation of commonality. Um, one more thing about the Psalms that I can't resist telling you uh, is that we were we finally got access after Merab went to Addis Ababa and we went and we got access to the Ethiopian Library. Um, it turns out that many of the, the particular manuscripts of illuminated psalms that we were looking for were simply not there. And the librarian said to us, well, what's the big deal? Here's another book of psalms. It's the same text. <laughs> As if the text is more is somehow, from that perspective, more important than uh, a particular 
version of the text, right? A particular manuscript. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And you talk in the book, and please share with the listeners something about the politics of translation of the Psalms. The the politics of translation? Mm -hmm. You'll have to remind me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you write about how the slight differences in translations that are done by the various uh, religious groups uh, speak differently uh, to to the content, that the difference in translation of a word or two or three, or leaving some things out, like all the mentions of Zion, for example. Ah, uh, yes, 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 uh, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. speaking of the, na- the many names of Jerusalem. Yeah, the, the, the fact is that a, a simple name of Jerusalem from the Psalms, a very common one like Zion, could be controversial and might be... Um, somehow elided or edited out of Arabic, uh, contemporary Arabic versions of the Psalms. Yeah, that was one of the, the curiosities. Nice, nice way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, technology meeting theology in the uh, examination of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, tell us that dramatic 2016 breakthrough you describe in the book, that resulted from a cooperative effort of researchers in Kentucky and in Israel who managed to uh, decipher a 2,000-year-old scroll, although they couldn't open it? Yeah, so it's it's one of the, the great themes of, of Jerusalem is this theme of legibility. What is legible today and what is illegible today? And how do you render something legible? So the Dead Sea Scrolls is a great example because as um, many visitors will tell you, well, I'll just give my own personal example. I, w- I was there with a uh, uh, with with a visitor. We went to the shrine of the book, and we were looking at some of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Scroll of Isaiah. And there happened to be a group of Israeli school kids there, and they could, without too much trouble, read the text. And I said to my friend, you know, in what other place in the world could school children, 10-year-olds, um, effortlessly read a text, make legible a text that was written 2,000 years ago. And on that same day, we that's when we went to the laboratory where they're photographing the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they're able, some of the scrolls are too, um, uh, either they're, they're too damaged to be legible, or in some cases, they're actually still rolled up um, as scrolls. In some cases, they were not on parchment, but on copper, for example. 
And the current technology allows a 3D imaging to virtually unspool um, and uncoil that scroll to make it legible for the first time. And that's just an amazing thing, amazing project that um, continues as we speak. It's quite astounding. Uh, nevertheless, despite the uh, heady atmosphere around the discovery and also the deciphering of, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, politics is never far behind. Uh, talk about the irony in the Palestinian claim to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, well, there was, um, there, 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 there's more than one irony. One irony has to do, before we get to the Palestinians, to the Syriac community, which, as we said before, is one of the poorest, in the oldest but the poorest. And they actually had three of the original scrolls. Um, and quite famously, the archbishop of the time wanted to sell them and put a classified ad in the Wall Street Journal <laughs> and wouldn't sell them directly to uh, Israel, but um, uh, but through intermediaries. That's how uh, the, the original seven scrolls and the larger scrolls were eventually united um, in Israel. Um, and that's how they're at the shrine of the book as we speak. So it's, uh, but, but to this day, the Syriac community sort of um, regards that as a very controversial decision. Why sell these scrolls, um, which were once in our hands? We also interviewed the son of the original dealer, an antiquities dealer um, uh, from Bethlehem, who originally bought the, those scrolls from the Bedouin uh, tribesmen who found them. And that was very interesting, and that involved some legal challenges of what we could say and what we couldn't say because some of the scrolls are still in the, in his private hands. You'd be surprised that there are still fragments uh, of this of the scrolls that are still up for sale <laughs> and that haven't been haven't been deciphered yet. Um, and I must say parenthetically that when our publisher had a, uh, uh, an in-house lawyer give our book a, a legal read, that was the one passage that we had to change. <laughs> uh, wow. So there's still there still may be discoveries in that. And then, of course, yeah, then there was a Palestinian claim that because the scrolls were found in Qumran, which is in the West Bank, that they somehow belong to Palestinian heritage um, and uh, they... Uh, filed lawsuits when the scrolls would travel abroad in Canada, for example. Um, these were eventually dismissed, but lawsuits that uh, these were cultural property and heritage of the Palestinian people and therefore should not be in, in the hands of the Israel Antiquities Authority. Um, so yeah, th it's inevitable that politics intersects with the story of Jerusalem at every turn. Well, the irony that I had in mind when I asked the questions was that uh, in the contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls are included instructions for building the temple. and operating the first temple, right. which Palestin whose existence Palestinians deny. So, That's right. The temple scroll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the temple scrolls. Uh, yeah, you can't you can't get away from that paradox. Right, <laughs> right. So, uh, talk about the relationship between the sacred and the secret. Uh, um, well, I'll give you another example of, of the sacred and the secret that also uh, touches on uh, the Palestinian question that we were just uh, speaking of, and that is that we, uh, 
happened to interview one of the great bibliographers of Jerusalem, Ishayahu Vinograd, and he told us this amazing story about how his grandparents and their family, the Vinograd family, started a yeshiva in the old city, um, which happened to be in what's now the Muslim quarter. And this yeshiva had to be evacuated um, first in the 30s and then just before the independence war of 1948 and it had to be evacuated quite hastily and the library of this yeshiva was left behind and the library speaking of of sacred was was all sacred texts and, and volumes of the talmud not particularly precious in and of itself but the palestinian caretaker of the yeshiva took it upon himself to uh, hide that library behind a false plaster wall so here we have a very concrete example of the sacred and the <laughs> and the secret, and kept the secret until his until his death. And uh, two days after the conclusion of the Six Day War in 1967, um, Ishayahu Vinograd tells tells us that he went with a major general from the Israel Defense Forces. They went to their property in the old city, the newly liberated old city, and they asked, "What about this? What about this library?" And they were told, "Well." The, uh, care, the Palestinian caretaker has, in the interim, died, but he entrusted the secret of the library to his brother. They introduced him to the brother. Sure enough, they go upstairs, and they pull down the plaster wall, and the library uh, was perfectly intact, dusty but intact. So quite an amazing story. And we... Um, and by the way, these were texts that the Palestinian caretaker couldn't read himself, but thought that they were sacred enough that they should be preserved. So we uh, asked the natural follow-up follow that anybody would, and we say to Vinograd, well, what's the name of that family? We'd love to talk to them. And he couldn't remember. They hadn't been in touch all those all those decades. So Merav and I went to the old city, and, and this is another sort of behind-the-scenes, <clears throat> very complex methodology of research, which is knocking on doors in Jerusalem. So we knocked on doors, and we asked about this story. And finally, uh, and some, some, the first person I think we we asked said in the Muslim quarter said, "Oh, that's just an urban legend." But we persisted. We uh, we knocked on more doors. Finally, someone says, "Yeah, I know the family," and we ended up um, to make a long story short in the living room of a woman named Dina Al Basha. And she said, yes, that was my father. And as she's speaking to us, she takes out a portrait of her father, puts it next to her on the couch, and tells us the same story from her perspective. And describes how her father was an educated man, a high school teacher, and thought that <clears throat> um, this preserving of uh, memory in this way was very significant. So... Um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when you ask about the sacred and the secret. And it's also a way of opening up um, this notion of how in Jerusalem, it's not only rivalries, but also sometimes communities preserve the memories of others, right, of other communities. And that's quite right. extraordinary. There's a, a sense of the sacred even in someone else's sacred text. Yeah, I think that has to do with what we said before, which is this shared, the shared Jerusalem, <clears throat> or at least the shared uh, imagination or, or fantasies of Jerusalem. You mentioned that uh, in the, on the issue of the sacred and the secret, uh, that uh, many sacred texts are either covered with a, a cloth covering or, or um, are inside of amulets, uh, is that 
because of their sacredness, do you think? Or uh, is it just as sacred to have a text with hidden meanings that isn't physically hidden? What's the dynamic there? Yeah, it's very interesting that you should point to that because um, it's a, it's it's a feature, a very, I think, strange feature of, of Jewish love, halacha, that that touching certain things can um, be a source of ritual impurity. In Hebrew, um, can make you tameh, and those include, for example, a dead body, as you would expect, but it also includes. Um, a Torah scroll. So <clears throat> the question is, why should a touching a Torah scroll be forbidden? Which is why if, if you go to a synagogue today and you see someone uh, who has to adjust the scroll or, or find a new place, they'll never touch the parchment directly. It's always through a cloth. And uh, we were thinking about that and we were thinking about how um, one interpretation of, of this very quizzical um, law might be that that a text can be so sacred that it shouldn't even be touched by human hands. That is to say, that that's a symbol of its transcendence. It 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 cannot be meddled with by human by human fingers and by the human hand. And uh, I think that 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 that's, this says something about how a text can be so sacred that in the case of Abu Nashimon, as we as we said before, you can kneel physically kneel um, when you when you read it or in some cases be very hesitant to touch it so today we don't touch text or we might put on a glove if we're in a rare books library and we don't want to damage the text but in this this right. case is a totally different um, <clears throat> practice not to not to prevent damage to a text but to prevent any sort of human arrogance that uh, a text is even touchable you know what I mean? Yeah, and and given that view of of holiness, uh, how do you think the digitizing and therefore democratizing of ancient texts how will that impact the feeling of their sacredness? It's a great question because some of the community, each of the communities, has a different um, relation to this question of digitizing texts, and and we. We always raise that question with the gatekeepers of Jerusalem's literary heritage. Uh, would you be open to? Some of them already have, but we, we gauge their openness to digitization. Um, and in some cases, there was great reluctance. And I think part of the reluctance may have to do with value, which is to say, uh, a text that is digitized, the original somehow loses its value. The aura of the original is somehow harmed. Um, another form of reluctance can be that uh, once you digitize a text, you lose control over it. Um, we we were in a library, an archive in a kolel, a, a Jewish um, archive in the ultra-Orthodox quarter of Jerusalem in Me'a Sharim, and they refused to digitize because they didn't want to cooperate with the di digitization experts at the National Library, since the National Library is a state-funded um, or institution, and they have this policy of not cooperating with state-funded institutions, right? Um, so that can be an obstacle. 
And on the other hand, there was, uh, in some other places, great openness towards digitization and even exclusive digitization. So we got an audience, among others, with the leader of a Hasidic community in Jerusalem. They're known as the Karliner Hasidim. And <clears throat> the it's a story in itself, the, that audience, but um, in the end, he told us that no one save he himself, save the Rebbe, save the, except the leader of the community, ever steps foot into that library. And uh, instead, every acquisition that they make, they digitize, and they make it publicly available, and anyone in the world can, can access that. And he said, well, why would you want to see the library when you can see it in a higher resolution on your screen? And that also has to do with this notion of loss, which is to say that the Karliner library before World War II was the most extensive Hasidic library perhaps in the world, and it was plundered and looted and uh, partially destroyed during the Second World War by the, <clears throat> the German soldiers. So that sometimes the uh, a library... The physicality of a library has to be protected, but the uh, other side of the coin is that it can be made publicly ac accessible and, and digitized. When you reflect on it, um, how did your research for the book and writing the book affect your personal relationship to the city of Jerusalem? Well, I was astonished, first of all, by the diversity of communities here. Um, communities that uh, I, I never would have visited otherwise. Um, I was struck by the commonality, even among rivals, the commonality between the lovers of the book of Jerusalem. So that uh, these people who themselves don't speak to each other, they actually share the same reverence toward the written word and the, and the textual history of Jerusalem as their neighbors do. Um, I, I have to tell you another anecdote that I don't think really got into the book, but we visited a private library of one of the great scholars of Jerusalem, Talmudic scholars of Jerusalem, an Israel Prize winner um, named Rabbi Daniel Sperber. And he has this gorgeous private library in the, old, in the old city. And he takes us up to the roof of this library. And, and, and he specializes in Aramaic and um, uh, the language of the Talmud. And he took us up to the rooftop, and we realized from the rooftop that it, you could almost leap from his rooftop to the rooftop of the Syriac monastery that we met, where we met Abuna Shimon, and where they have that neglected library. And and it turns out that these two gatekeepers and two lovers of the written word both deal with in Aramaic, albeit one Christian Aramaic and one Talmudic Aramaic, and yet these two men have never met. And I thought that's just amazing that that. Um, uh, these two men who are of similar ages, of similar temperaments, similar, uh, sim similarly under the influence of the love of, of the book and of this particular language, and yet have never met. So it's a great dream that one day we could bring all these characters in the book together and, and have them meet for the first time. That is really astounding. <laughs> In that case, um, what do you think Ecclesiastes meant when he said, of making books, there is no end? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. That's Ecclesiastes was such a, um, allegedly written by, by 
Solomon in Jerusalem, by the way, was such a downer on so many things. (laughs) (laughs) This may just be a special case of that. Um, I I, but, I, I can understand I can understand the prolifer- I can understand the frustration with the proliferation of books. I'm I'm sitting now in the Van, Van Leer Library in Jerusalem, and there's just this incredible um, array of books in front of me right now. And each of these books represents years of someone's life, you know. And and you can sort of see the despair that Ecclesiastes might have felt even in his day of the sheer. Uh, proliferation of the written word and and the inability to master everything. And maybe that's what he was talking about, because um, even if you limit yourself to, let's say, the literature of Jerusalem, the libraries of Jerusalem are such vast universes in and of themselves that it's impossible to master them. And by the way, it's also impossible for any single person to master all the languages of Jerusalem, um, from Coptic to Arabic to to Hebrew, etc. So Maybe that's what Ecclesiastes was trying to get at, was the sheer despair when faced with that, that, that scene. Or maybe he had in mind something like your story about uh, the two scholars in Aramaic, mm. that he, books have no end because they tie disparate people and disparate places together. Mm. That they sort of overlap and bleed mm. into each other. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's well. That's the wonder of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> you never know whether he's despairing or optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I appreciate you your generosity with it. Uh, but before we say goodbye, tell us what you're working on now. Well, um, I just finished uh, some. Uh, uh, international editions of my last book, which was called Kafka's Last Trial, which is also about uh, Jerusalem Library, in this case, the National Library and its acquisition of the manuscripts of Franz Kafka and the strange story about how those manuscripts were rescued from Prague to Palestine in 1939. And it's really a question of, uh, I'm very interested in sort of disputed cultural heritage. In this case, the question was, is Kafka a Jewish writer and as such belongs as uh, cultural heritage in Jerusalem uh, to the National Library? Or is he a German writer who wrote in the German language, a master of the modern German canon who belongs in Germany? And that became a, a very long and protracted trial in Jerusalem that ended in the Supreme Court. And so my next project is in a way related, which is... Uh, uh, my Kafka book came out in Polish, and I was in October. Um, I spent some time in Poland and came across a, a Polish Jewish writer named Bruno Schulz, who was killed in the Second World War uh, just after completing some murals in his town. And those murals were considered lost from the Second World War until very recently. And uh, only in the last 15 years or so, they were rediscovered. And the moment, a month after they were rediscovered, someone tipped off somebody at Yad Vashem that they had been rediscovered. And Yad Vashem, under very mysterious circumstances, sent a team of people, um, perhaps aided by the Mossad, to literally chisel the murals of Bruno Schulz off of the walls of his uh, uh, of this house in Drohobich and fly them to 
Yad Vashem and, and this caused a great diplomatic incident because, of course, in Poland, Bruno Schulz is considered a great Polish writer. Um, and uh, that's my next project that I'm just beginning on is sort of the disputed cultural heritage as it pertains to another writer who had multiple identities. So, um, yeah, another complex story of bringing cultural heritage to Jerusalem. I'm I'm still stuck on the daring uh, <laughs> operation that they went and took a mural off the wall. That's that's an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I re- I look forward to reading that one. <laughs> yeah, <We> can... <laughs> it sounds like a great project. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you, and as I enjoy reading your books. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, and... Renee. It was a great pleasure. And many thanks to Bela Pasikov, our researcher. Take care. Bye-bye now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.